You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group. www.americantheatre.org Welcome to a very special edition of Off Script, American Theatre's podcast on all things theatrical. I'm Rob Weinert, Kent, the Editor-in-Chief. I'm delighted to share today with you a conversation we hosted last week, moderated by the great Gabrielle Hoyt, a frequent contributor to the magazine, I'm proud to say, in which we gathered theater artists who either currently or recently have been part of works on stage in New York that examine Jewishness or anti-Semitism at a time when anti-Jewish hate crimes and anti-Semitic speech have resurfaced in American culture to an unsettling and astonishing degree. We were honored to have with us for this conversation Joel Gray, whose staging of Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish is having another run at New World Stages off-Broadway, Tova Felchu, who recently joined the cast of Broadway's Funny Girl in the role of Rose Bryce, Casey Levy, currently appearing in Tom Stoppard's Leopoldstadt on Broadway, Michael Arden, who in early November directed a high-profile revival of Jason Robert Brown's Parade at City Center, and Bess Wall, whose play Camp Siegfried is currently running at second stage off-Broadway. We won't spend uh, time here giving you a list of all these illustrious guests' credits or summarizing the premises of each of these very different works that they're a part of, that's what the Google is for. As usual, we rely on your support to continue to do this work, and we'll need your continued support if we ever want to come back uh, with a print issue of American Theatre. The best way to, to support us is to become a TCG member. You can go to americantheater.org slash join to find out more. That's americantheater, spelled R-E, dot org slash join. But without further ado, here's Gabrielle Hoyt leading this rich conversation with these amazing folks. Thanks for listening. Theater is often criticized for its inability to respond with immediacy to the present moment. That is not a problem for your shows, uh, which run the gamut from stories of Jewish success to narratives of American Nazis to everything in between. And what I want to do in this hour more than anything else is explore what your work means today, which is November, uh, November 10th. 2022 and what it means to contemporary audiences and what it means to each of you so actually where i want to start this conversation and again see kind of all the magical and creative ways that all of you take it is by asking what do each of the plays that you're here to talk about today mean to you personally and how do their narratives intersect with your own may i Please. Um, having the Ukraine circumstance as a background to this play today, and it turns out that we talk about Kiev in Yiddish, and um, you know, it's it's about that time when all of our relatives, or whatever our relatives. We're living there and running away. And these people in Ukraine are still running away. And the fact that it's happening in real time really sits on my head. Thank you, Joel. Um, I'll jump in. Please. 
I, when I first read Leopoldstadt and auditioned for it, I was struck by the themes of the play being as relevant today, just the conversations between the family members of, are Jews safe? Where are we safe? Um, does Israel matter? Do we need a homeland of our own? Um, and I, I was, I mentioned that in my audition. I said, these words I'm speaking as Eva, um, I, I have these debates with my husband every day. Um, and this was before the headlines of the last month or so, which have just been so extraordinarily awful and scary. So, um, you know, Lador Vador, generation to generation, um, I think these are questions that Jews have been asking themselves since the beginning of time. And here we are again, asking them. The same questions, right? I can jump in. I think that the Jewish people have the great advantage of the fear of extinction. I think it's very important to stand up and tell a Jewish story. I also think it's very interesting that in Funny Girl, I'm the first actress of the Jewish religion to play Rosie Price. And that's <laughs> interesting. So these Jews, talented Jews, wrote this Jewish story. And Rosie Price, Rosia Branach, owned four saloons in Manhattan. They saw the word saloon, and guess who got those parts? Irish Catholic actresses for decades. So um, after this latest rendition with the wonderful Beanie Gold, uh, Feldstein and Jane Lynch, one of the producers who happens to be of a Jewish background, actually two of them, thought, hey, why don't we cast a Jew in this part, you know? So they did and it, and it worked. And my job is to make this Rosie Bryce particularly Jewish, not particularly American. I think that is one of the joys of doing Funny Girl Now. Harvey has rewritten some of the script and it, it says Mazel Tov Fanny on Henry Street. And they, uh, I asked to call Fanny Fanala and they said yes. I asked to put in Oy 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 and, and we finally got the Toy 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 right because it's in, it's in our, my heritage, certainly is in Joel and my heritage. I can speak about Parade a little bit. Um, you know, this this is a uh, a musical that that I think many people have sort of known for a while, but not quite seen in a long time. I, I was there opening night in at the at Lincoln Center. Wow. Well, it's you know, it was interestingly enough, you know, it 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 didn't get quite at all the life it deserved originally um, for, you know, I think it was, it was playing in the Clinton years when we thought that we had sort of had everything behind us, that we had figured out racism, that we had had sort of uh, decided that anti-Semitism was a thing that died really left during the cold war. And so it sort of felt like a bit more of a, you know, historical fiction. And, you know, here we were rehearsing at city center, a 10 day rehearsal process. And, on day three, you know, or four, this people were doing Nazi salutes on over the 405. And so that was that way it, it felt like day by day, we began to understand that the work where that we were doing the story that we were telling, uh, which is ultimately about how people's traumas undealt with over time become become hatred, reciprocal retribution and become, uh, you know, they try to inflict trauma, trauma upon others because they believe that they that there's not a, not enough in the world they believe that the success of someone else the 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 
someone else is uh, getting something means that they are losing something. So this became like more and more prescient every day. And uh, so it was fascinating to get to work on this show right now. And I think um, we began to see while we were working on it day by day that what we were doing was like actually really, really, really important. Um, and and to be able to look at something that really uh, happened, this true story of, of Leo Frank and his lynching, and then look at it through the sort of post, not post, but but since the Black Lives Matter movement has has begun to to sort of look at how racism and anti-Semitism are the same thing. Uh, it it all it all is about white supremacy and how that has is infiltrated every the judicial system, the our political system, our schooling, how we're educated. And so uh I think entering into it, we we wanted to like tell a piece of historical historical drama and it became something much more relevant so that was fascinating upsetting but I feel you know that thank god we we had a chance to tell that story every night last week um it's really interesting hearing everyone talk because it's just resonating so much with like everything that's in my brain right now and um the feeling of the sort of terror of history repeating itself and and how can you learn from what we've been through and hopefully live with more awareness and 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 action and all the things that we're we're striving for um my play is also historical in that it, it takes place in 1938 on long island and um it sort of came from um I wrote it in the summer of 2020 during the re-election campaign of donald trump and um the um setting for the play is a real summer camp on Long Island that was called Camp Siegfried that um, was run by the German-American Bund in the late 1930s and basically was a, a way of indoctrinating kids into Nazi ideology. And the, the photographs and the footage from Long Island, Camp Siegfried, looks like it's straight out of Nazi Germany, like swastikas everywhere. You can't believe, I mean, when I first encountered this this story, I couldn't believe that this had happened in America. And so I, I, I thought a lot about sort of how reluctant we are to look at our own darkness, the, the sort of darker parts of our history and how important it is to look at them and understand them. I, I felt really personally connected to it um, in a lot of ways. The, the morning after the election of Donald Trump, our, our neighborhood playground where my kids play was graffitied with swastikas the morning after. And so I felt this sense that um, this was really encroaching and I wanted to look at how, um, how these movements happen and especially in America. And um, I wanted to tell a piece of history but also do something more in terms of sort of looking at why this and how and what what happens in the human psyche that allows these things to grow and what happens in our communities that allows these things to grow and um and um really um try to understand something about this this um sense of mass delusion that um can come over people um and and try to um create something that that can wake people up from that or that can at least let us think about it differently. Maybe it sits in the belly of man. I was mm. with uh, His Eminence Cardinal O'Connor 
And I said, you know, I'm just a Jew, but do you really believe in the devil? He said, absolutely, Miss Fauci. It sits in the belly of man and we have wow. choices. The, the thing actually, to me, that binds all these plays together is their interest in an imagined historical past. Everything from, you know, the fables of Sholem Aleichem to Tom Stoppard's own exploration of a family history through Leopoldstadt to um, Jason Robert Brown's musicalization of the lynching of, of Leo Frank. And so I'm really interested in what the past is saying to us in the present and also what it is asking of us to imagine for the future. And Joel, just because I know that you are here with us for only another 10 minutes, I would love to begin by asking that of you, especially given Fiddler's beautiful, beautiful um, translation of an American musical into Yiddish and how that um, act of translation and that depiction of an imagined past is speaking to who we are now. I don't speak Yiddish. So when I took the job, I had to say that. And we had to rehearse it in English first and then put on the Yiddish. And there were a lot of, lot of young people in the play who were not Jewish, who never heard of it, didn't know anything about it and became absolutely fascinated and committed to learning this difficult language and getting on stage and seeing the effect of Yiddish on audiences, on non-Jewish audiences, hearing this language that they thought maybe was dark, negative, uh, the enemy, uh, anti-Semitism, I mean, it sits in our theater because people don't even know that they're anti-Semitic until they do. And this play brings that all up. And as do all of these, this is a great idea for you to uh, put together these particular plays to talk about. Michael, I wonder if I could throw this to you also, in part also because of the very different um, reception of Parade now versus when it, it came out and, and ask this a similar question in you know, what is the retelling and retelling of this story doing for us now, 2022, that you know perhaps it was telling all along, but we're hearing it differently now. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think retelling is is the only way we remember. It's the only way we are forced to re-examine something from the different vantage points of our own age, you know, and experience. For instance, like when I, you know, I first read New Parade, you know, as a college student, went to Lincoln Center and watched the capture or whatever. And, you know, I... It it means an entire so so much more to me now, and is an and actually is an entirely different story to me now. I thought, oh, this is a love story about two people, you know, against all odds, you know. And actually, no, like sure, that's part of it, but but to me now, seeing it based on experience, both of mine and my experience of the world, that changes. And so, if we 
if we only tell a story once, how how do we learn from it? In given it's like given, how can we learn from <laughs> the full possibility and capability of the material? If that makes sense, like we're not we're not we're not actually seeing the full story unless we revisit and revisit. You know, it's why we revisit Shakespeare. It's why we celebrate holidays. It is why we have, you know, I'm a, I am not a Jewish person. So, and I look and I see, you know, we, we celebrate freaking Easter every year. You know, what is that about? Like, why do we need to do that? Oh no, it's actually about stories. It's about because we need to revisit stories at different points in our life so that more of the essence and truth and reason for remembrance um, appears as we grow. And so that's sort of what it felt like to me that this is, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the idea of like never forgetting. Well, you, in order to never forget, you have to, you have to continue telling the story over and over again. I, I love what Michael, what you just said. I was on the same tip thinking about Passover and that this is what we do on Passover. We sit around a table with our people and some invited guests, which we are commanded to bring into our Seder table. And we retell the story of our exodus from Egypt and when we were enslaved. And the reason we tell it is so that we don't forget. It's the same reason we make theater. It's the same reason we revive shows and we examine them differently when they're revived to try to make them more relevant to what we're living through now. Um, so I think it's very tied together. These pieces are all very much, um, there's, it's not an accident that they're all being performed right now. I think people are craving uh, examination of our world. I think, you know, I think people, I think Jewish people are really examining their relationship to their Judaism, Jewish Americans right now. What does that mean? And it can mean a million different things. And Lord knows it does. I mean, especially Jews, we love to disagree about our faith and our religion. And I think that's part of what makes it's sort of like, I always describe Judaism as like a choose your own adventure book, you know, because everybody just really comes at it from a different angle. But what binds us is we're Jews and we are wandering and we have been from the beginning of time. And so our stories matter. And I think, I think we're claiming them in a way. I see Broadway specifically, Broadway and off-Broadway claiming these stories in a way that five, 10 years ago, we weren't. Um, the representation on stage, the fact that more Jews are playing Jews, as Tova mentioned, um, you know, that's not an accident. That's something that people are asking themselves, huh, why hasn't this been the case before? Why, why is it important for other minority groups and yet not for Jews? So now we're, we're starting to ask those tough questions, have those tough discussions with Jews and non-Jews alike, and, and looking at those sort of inherited, inherent biases um, and feelings about our own culture and religion and faith and ethnicity. And, and that's what theater is for. It's so funny you say that, Casey. Also in Parade, you know, Jason said, this is the first time there have ever been Jewish people playing Leo and Lucille Frank in a, in a major production, which is like crazy to me. Joel, before we lose you, I don't, I don't want to, I want to make sure that I ask at least, um, I would love to hear, I'm sure we all would, Revisiting Fiddler now, this year, what new things has it said to you? What has surprised you? What have you seen in it that you didn't even a few years ago when you staged it brilliantly for the first time? I, I always thought of it as 
more Chekhovian than Broadway. Uh, but these people were from a very specific shtetl and they talked to each other. And the, the style of musical when Fiddler came out was very radical in a way, but very, very general and not specifically Jewish. And um, I don't think they, they dealt with the background except that the depth of Jerry Robbins' Yiddishkeit that he had inside of him, whether he liked it or not, uh, came out and he knew it. It was in his bones. And it's, uh, it's in my bones and I'm trying to put it in the, in the cast's bones because we have a lot of non-Jews acting in this. And um, they're just wonderful in that their willingness to join me uh, in being Jewish for a couple of hours, really, and, and being proud of it and connected to it. So um, it's, it's really interesting because there are a lot of people who don't speak the language, who don't look at the, the translation. They're just, they're into the characters and they know what they're saying. And uh, that was my joy to uh, introduce them to being Jews. Anti-Semitism is a societal problem, right? It is a symptom of decline or even collapse at times of instability, whether it is the American South in parade or it is um, Vienna and Western Europe trying to find a purpose after World War I. Um, that's when it comes up and it's a societal problem. It's everyone's problem, but so often it gets framed as a Jewish problem, a problem for Jews that only Jews should really care about. And I think something that each of your plays does so beautifully is it invites an entire audience, not just Jewish members of an audience to consider how anti-Semitism is a problem for all of us. And I would love to discuss how you feel like each of your plays is doing so. And Bess, I would love to start with you on this because yours of the plays that we're talking about today is the one that doesn't depict Jewish characters. And yet those characters are very insulated and naive in some ways and very knowing and culpable in other ways. And I'm wondering how you are inviting, again, a whole audience, every member of an audience who sees your play at second stage to think about this problem as our problem and an American problem specifically. Yeah, it honestly, it was very scary for me to uh, start to think about these characters. It, it's a 16 year old girl, it's a 17 year old boy. They've been sent to 
um, be indoctrinated in in this camp, a Nazi summer camp that looks like um, idyllic on the surface and is um, incredibly um, uh, devastatingly evil on the in the underbelly and deeply um, anti-Semitic and and um, and it was. I spent a lot of time thinking like, what am I asking of an audience in terms of introducing them to these characters? And uh, how do I want people to be thinking of them? And how am I thinking of them? And, and, and what is the reason for introducing people to these particular characters? All of, all of that, that was like deeply on my mind. And also given their age, like how, how, how should we think of the equation of sort of responsibility um, for both of these people um, and not shying away from it, but also not putting things on them that 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 they don't know yet, you know? So it, it's, a, it's a very thorny and complicated space to navigate. And I think that's part of why I was interested in trying to figure it out. Um, and I think ultimately um, for me, the the question of sort of, how we get seduced as a community and as a society into um, uh, sort of, in the case of my play, fascistic, um, really violent, terrible ideologies uh, is, is part of what I'm trying to track with these characters. Like, you know, when you meet, like, how are they seduced? How are we seduced by them? What are the moments when we forget and they just seem like these really nice kids? And then we sort of like bring bring reality back in and sort of calculating all of that in, in the sort of package of a play, which is an instrument of seduction already, you know, and is sort of drawing you in and asking you to forget things and telling you a story, you know, all of that was like part of why I was interested in trying to unpack this and, and look at it and, and um, you know, because I think these movements don't start with like um, where they end, you know, they start with like, doesn't it feel good to be part of a community? Doesn't it feel good to, to stand up for your country? Don't you wanna, you know, and they sort of build people up in this way. Um, and then before you know it, you've sort of um, fallen into something um, really terrible. So I, I think that, I think that I was interested in that, in trying to figure that journey out um, as scary and upsetting and horrifying and dangerous as it feels every night. Casey, I'd love to talk to you about this question uh, specifically because Leopoldstadt is in many ways such a European play. It's set in Vienna. Uh, it was originally, you know, premiered in the UK and won the Olivier. And you are, um, I'm, I'm specifically interested in your experience as a performer, how you're reaching across those multiple cultural gaps and also gaps in time in order to, again, make this bigger than one family's story. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Well, as Beth said, it's it's so interesting that we don't end where we start, that that uh, the fright of anti-Semitism and, and its rise every time it swells in our communities is um, down to many, many factors that sort of creep slowly. And what I think is really interesting about how Tom has structured Leopoldstadt is we meet this family, this extended family, when things were good, when they were Jewish without being offensive, when they were in the community-ish, sort of assimilated. Um, and 
we see as time goes on, um, how they are pushed further and further away from society and demonized and scapegoated and all of that. Um, but I know as like a Jew growing up, I felt like I had a lot of Holocaust education, but not a lot of education about prior. And that was really interesting in working on this play, doing all the research, um, doing all the reading, and just kind of like getting in touch with these thriving communities that existed in Europe before the Holocaust. Um, and I think that's what is sort of uh, hitting people like a ton of bricks at our show, because they've heard that there's Holocaust elements of this play, but the play opens with a really lively, happy Jewish family bantering and arguing and discussing with the Christmas tree on stage in Vienna. And they're like, what is this? What I, did we buy the right tickets? So I think um, it's really been really interesting to investigate that. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's all I have to say on that for now. I'm not going to ramble. Sorry. <laughs> Oh, you're not rambling. That's amazing. Um, Michael, for you, I'm curious because um, from what I've read, I sadly was not able to see the very short City Center production run, but you incorporated in your direction elements um, that were not of the time period. Am I right? That that were calling out to different moments in time and, and kind of, is that, am I I use a lot of historical photography. Uh, I, it was really important to me that like when we met a character, we saw a photo of that real person. And so we really understood as an audience several things. One, that this person really existed, that they, you know, wore clothes and walked just like we do. Um, uh, walk the earth like we do. Um, uh, and then it was also important for me I really wanted to engage the audience sort of on a on a more active level so sort of putting seeing photos of these people while looking at actors on stage so you're seeing Lucille and Leo Frank's picture but then looking at Michaela Diamond and Ben Platt and understanding these are not they are playing these people so we're able to then you know from a Brechtian the Fremden's effect like way begin to begin to kind of put ourselves in a more um sort of a more what's the word I'm looking for I'm sorry um we were able to kind of contemplate them in a different way um and in and so we weren't just like on a on an emotional ride we were as an audience we were engaged as sort of critical thinkers at the same time so that was that was something that was really important to me so that so that it kind of engaged the audience to forget that they were trying that they were watching people pretending to be people and they could just like put that to bed and hopefully become a bit more emotionally and intellectually engaged in the story so that you know um and and there were some modern elements too just very, just kind of bookending it because it was important to me. I I flew down the week before we started rehearsal to Marietta and drove out to the lynching site and did took projection photography for the production and did video stuff for it so that we could. So it was important to me to be reminded of like what that place looks like now. It's now a Waffle House, you know. It's a, there's a Chick Fil A there. It's on the side of a highway, and then ultimately, like he is indeed forgotten in many ways. Like this story has been forgotten, as have like the uncountable lynchings that occurred since 
post-Civil War to, to now, you know. Um, and in a way, like lynchings are still occurring. They're just, you know, in different in different forms. They just, you know, people happen to wear badges and shoot people in the back now. You know, so like this thing is this is still happening. And it was important for me to remind the audience that like, yeah, if you if if this is if uh, this tiny little landmark on the side of the highway that no one knows is there is so easily forgotten, then so quickly it can happen again. Um, so that I, I maybe that's what you're thinking of, but um, it was important to me to to really to really make it about now and sh and kind of show that this cycle is ever continuing. And uh, and you know we've been I think Aeschylus was trying to point this out in the Oristia. You know, like when do we stop? When do we stop saying I am hurting? Therefore, I need someone else to hurt more than me, so I feel happier. And I think that's kind of what this play is about. It's like when, when we don't, when when people don't have a way to deal with, articulate or articulate their trauma, like the, the horrible, horrible things can occur. And can I say one more thing? And in parade, like everyone is a victim. You know, what I think is really interesting is like, you know, the black characters are victims. Leo is a victim, Lucille's a victim. Mary Fagan is certainly a victim. You know, it's it's we are we are dealing with the like this the the reverberation of of this and um and I think if we begin to understand that like we are all what ties us together is in a way we are all dealing with this then the divides might seem less wide between between certain groups. Thank you, Michael. And I was. I was listening to the parade soundtrack this morning as I prepped and thinking something so similar as I was listening to a rumbling and a rolling and the different ways that lives are valued and how prescient it is to have had that conversation um, when that play was written and how that must have hit in the theater last week. Um, so something that is so striking just listening to all of you talk is this sense of almost moral imperative that it sounds like each of you have experienced working on these plays that this is about making art which i think we all find meaningful because we all decided to be artists but that on these productions there have been moments of understanding that there was a sense of ethical or moral purpose driving you forward and actually, Tova, I would love to begin with you because I'm so glad that Funny Girl is a part of this conversation because Funny Girl is so much about Jewish joy and Jewish success in America. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful story to be telling on stage. And I would love to hear from you about that question of how do you as an actor, as a person or as a Jewish person feel that you have any, you know, some kind of moral or ethical imperative to be playing this part? Well, I was lucky. I was born Terry Sue Felchu in an undisclosed decade. And um, I changed my name to Tova. It's actually in this memoir that was published by Hachette last year called Lilyville, Mother, Daughter and Other Roles I've Played. But I fell in love with a boy at Wesleyan named Michael Fairchild, and he didn't like the name Terry Sue. You say, what kind of a name is Terry Sue for a girl like you? You're from the North. What else were you called? And I said, I was called Tova in Sunday school. I did not say Tova in Hebrew school, but it was Tova in Hebrew school. It was part of the conservative movement, Tuesdays and Thursdays from four to six and Sundays from nine to one. And I was the only bat mitzvah at Quakeridge school. Also, I wanted to tell you, um, 
Do you like Casey or Cassie as the pronunciation of your name? It's Casey. Casey. Yeah. So what I wanted to say is that Holocaust education was not done in the 50s in public schools. Um, it was not brought up in Hebrew school. We were de dealing with the birth of Israel and the struggles of Israel. So I thought that was interesting. But I had a father who was a GI and he was in the intelligence and General Eisenhower chose his Jewish boys who were fluent in German. My father was a graduate of Harvard Law School on scholarship. He was part of the American dream. And he let those Jewish boys interrogate the SS and the Wehrmacht to decide who went to Nuremberg. So my father got home in 46, I was not yet born. But by the time I was a little girl, he always used to say, be proud of being Jewish because, and have joy in it, because you will be reminded anyway. And that's what Leopold Stadt's all about. I, um, I even worked with Edward Stoppard, uh, Tom's son. So the dilution of our tradition is, uh, it, uh, there's no free lunch. You pay for that too. Anyway, by changing my name to Tova Felchu, my perceived value changed and the landscape of my entire artistic life changed. And I started to inherit roles of great, great Jewish heroines, whether it's Yentl, RBG, Ruth Westheimer, of course, Golda Meir, and Rosie Bryce. And I think of the parable of the elephant and the rider. And I'm not sure, Michael, which is which, that the elephant is our underbelly that has unconscious racism, racism, exclusivity, and the rider is that shining God spark inside each of the human soul where the, the, the rider has a choice to ride the elephant, to be the dominant force that influences our nature, to make sure we're inclusive, to watch our mouths. You know, we were able to talk in the 50s and the 60s the way this would never be allowed. Humor has changed. In all events, by making uh, Funny Girl more particularly Jewish, less apologetic, which is what Harvey did, I rode that horse in the direction it was galloping, and they let me do it. And Michael Mayer said, you don't have to replace, you recreate this role. And I just made her a Jewish mother. So what are, what are the elements of that? You are tethered to the child. You are tethered to the future, that your children are not just... Uh, your children to be disciplined and shaped, your children are the survival of a people. And that's a very big difference. Also, my grandmother Ada wanted, was a British Jew and she wanted to be a musical actress. And they said, Ada, Ada, show us your ankles. She showed them her ankles. And they said, Ada, Ada, show us your knees. And she says, nobody sees my knees except grandpa. And then not so often. So she didn't become an actress, but I took that dream and who taught her everything she knows? I said, wait a minute, Rosie Price dances, she sings. So when I asked to dance, which I do, I tap dance in the show, the choreographer said, you want to dance? You want to dance? And it was a very big thing to make sure that my child was the seed, that I was the harbor. I was the belly from which she came. I was the first person of dream and vision that Fanny Bryce would then fulfill, which is any immigrant dream. Also, we got lucky because it's an American story in the sense that Leah Michelle has been playing Fanny Bryce and marinating that part for 18 years, high for life. So she was ready to rock and roll and she was not originally cast. And then the casting, for whatever reason, uh, did, not, did not sell enough. So when Leah and I were cast, um, I have to say in honor of this actress, the box office shot up $1 million a week and she deserves it.
She's phenomenal. And she was the first person who could take that mantle from Streisand, recreate her own, her own Fanny Bryce and with her enormous talent. And we tell this Jewish story with pride. And like Joel says, everybody comes to see it. Many, 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 many non-Jews come to see it, of course, because it's part of their memory bank. And because it lurks, Streisand is lurking in the background. I saw her when I was 13 years old. And actually I wrote her, I wrote, Dear Barbara, I'm finally playing your mother, Love Tova. And she wrote me back, she wrote me back. And it was, it was, I have a wonderful acquaintanceship with her. So I'm very proud to play these roles. And I think now with people, and I'll say it right out, like Kanye West and like this fabulous person, Mr. Irving, I think it's very important to speak out and to stand up and to say, look here and look at who flanked Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. Keep your eyes 2020, please. It's fascinating to me. I've never experienced any, anything like this in my life. And I've had seven decades on this planet and I have never experienced anti-Semitism so overt and uh, controversial as it is now. And I don't get it. I don't get it. Because if, if, if they come after us, who do you think they're going to go after next? Come on. You think Jason Robert Brown is foolish? You know, he knows what he's talking about. So... Oh, thank you. I want to pick up on something you said actually about Leopold Stadt and throw this to you, Casey, which is that I think like one of the most beautiful parts of that play is that it how much time it actually spends, as you were saying, in the family unit in, uh, it, you know, in, in uh, what's the word I'm looking for, saturated in just a Jewish family and Jewish joy and relationships and ritual as well, because we get that Passover service, uh, a Seder halfway through the play or so. And I'd love to, you know, ask again, this question of morality and, and ethics in theater, but think specifically about you getting to portray not just Jewish suffering, but also Jewish joy, ritual, connection, family, and how that has been for you as a performer. It's been really, really special. You know, I was the girl that in the early parts of my career could never get an audition for Fiddler. I'd never played any Jewish roles. Um, until recently, really, till COVID hit. And then I was in Carolina Change, which was a very Jewish show. Um, and I was, it was new territory for me. And then I went straight to the Bedwetter off Broadway, which was another Jewish role, not really to do with anything religious, more just cultural. And now Leopoldstadt. So it's, it's pretty been, it's been really wild, actually, for me to just like investigate what does that mean to me on stage, you know, this huge part of who I am and who I've always been um now showing up in my art in a way that it never had and <clears throat> I find it um I find it really moving you know we uh all of Broadway and off Broadway we do shows on all the major Jewish holidays but of course not on Christmas or New Year's Eve and I will forever be irritated by that but especially with Leopoldstadt we had shows on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and it felt very wrong um, more than Carolina Change, more than any other show I've ever done. I was I was really grappling with it, and we had just started previews, and so I understood that you know the way the calendar fell and the way you know, I think we were on our third or fourth preview on Yom Kippur um, that there was probably no way around it in the planning. Um, but it was interesting because I thought, well, no Jews are going to come see this show on Yom Kippur. And then I got a bunch of texts from people who were like, oh, I just broke the fast and I'm here at the show. 
And I realized that it was a way for certain Jews to express their Judaism or to feel connected to their Judaism. And so I felt a certain amount of um, pride in working on that day. And, you know, I'm not religious, but I just felt like this show and the subject matter um, maybe warranted a, a cancellation or a reschedule on those holidays. Um, but in the end, it ended up being quite meaningful to perform this Jewish piece on, a, on a, our, the most important date in our calendar and remember these people that were lost and invest all this time in this family and care about them and know them as people. And then we end you know, with, with the loss of the generations of this family. Um, so I find it really moving every night and I find it really um, challenging. You know, some nights I'm really affected by the piece and being a Jew um, and being an actor in this piece. And other nights, I think I kind of hold it at arm's length, just sort of as a survival mechanism. Um, but especially as Tova was saying, with what's going on in our country and in our world right now, and this really frightening uptick in anti-Semitism, I feel it's more important than ever to be telling this story. And I feel really privileged that I get to be part of it um, and honor the people that came before me, you know, remember them. Like, I think that's what Leopoldstadt is about. I think um, it's what a lot of our purpose of making theater is about. It's about remembering the people that came before us and honoring their legacies. And so I feel that I'm able to do that in this piece and that that hopefully will send people out of the theater at the end of the night asking questions about their own families, whether they're Jews or otherwise. It's really not about that. It's about remembering the people that came before you, doing better than the last generation, having tough conversations, standing up for what's right, um, being an active participant in the world, and, and standing up for people who are your people and people who aren't doing the right thing so that history doesn't repeat itself. And, and that's my main takeaway. And so I feel really honored to be in a piece that makes people think like that when they leave. You know, it's great to do a really fun Broadway musical, but it's really wonderful to do a piece that you think is, is truly touching people and sending them out into the world with an idea about how they want to change their lives. Thank you, Casey. Um, Michael and Bess, for you, I'm just, I'm so struck by that. And Michael, I know we're losing, we're, we're ending very shortly. Um, both of you visited the sites of your works. Uh, Bess, I know that you went to the site of Camp Siegfried. Michael, you went to the site of Leo Frank's lynching. And the reason you were able to do that is because they were in the US. And uh, I'd imagine that looking at that, looking at that history head on must be difficult and painful. And yet you both chose to do it. And I, I would love to kind of bring our conversation to a close by asking the two of you, what was that driving, that thing that made you keep looking and decide to help others to look as well? And Michael, let's start with you. It's always really important for me to kind of uh, do as much research as director as I can. And, and, and the best for me, the best way I sort of begin to understand a place is by being in it. I'm very space responsive. So, um, for instance, like doing Once in this Island, like I went to Haiti and spent some time there. And 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 for this, it just as as we were approaching rehearsal, I just this this nagging. I'd been I'd spent time in Atlanta, of course. So I I knew Atlanta pretty well, but but something about like what was so important was this place where it all came to a conclusion, this this 
you know, in, in Marietta itself. And I began to look online and I saw that it was located by this Waffle House. And I was like, I have to go um, just because I needed to sit there. I felt like I needed to pay my my respect. I needed to I needed to um, I needed to drive the 20 miles that he he drove or was driven to that site. I needed to understand what proximity was. And 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 I just think just in, on a spiritual level, I think it was important that I went there and sort of said, thank you, asked for a blessing as well to tell this story and ask for guidance on a spiritual way. And um, and so that's just something that is really important to me and in, in all of my work that I, I, I'm not just imagining because we do so much imagining, like so much of the theater is imagining, but I think it's important to do some experiencing uh, in order to do, so you have something to, to jump off from. So, um, yeah. And, you know, I, being there, I, it, it completely changed how I directed the show. Before we go, I'm curious, all of these pieces, what future do you think they're helping us imagine? Not just, and, you know, for the U.S., of course, but also for American theater. What, what are we imagining as we talk about these pieces all together, do you think? Such a good question. I, I for me, um, I think my play is a little bit of a warning more than anything. You know, it's it's not presenting um, an answer because I don't feel that I have the answer. You know, um, I I feel like my role as an artist is to sort of live in this um, state of sort of grasping and and attempting to get a little closer to something that feels authentic and true but um it, i it's not presenting a here here's here's what the future holds i think in a way you know uh my play is set in 1938 so so th there's this sense of being on the precipice of just just you know the the most appalling horrors that that humanity could ever conceive of and and so you know there's a sense of how do you know when you're on the precipice and what does it feel like to be on the precipice and 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 are we now you know terrifying though that is to contemplate and say just given the the rise of anti-semitism and, and the current climate and the sense that our our democracy is, is sort of hanging in the balance like what might we be on the verge of you know I, I think I'm sort of asking that question in the hope that by asking that question people will sort of pause and consider that and maybe think about how to you know pull pull back from the ledge and 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 recommit to the the beautiful values that um our country was founded on and the things that we all i think desperately want when we're um as tova said sort of not the elephant but the rider you know casey for you leopold Stott, part of what makes it so meaningful is that the future it's imagining is in many ways tom stoppard looking back at his family and writing the play it's the play is kind of imagining its own creation. But I'm curious for, for you, what do you think Leopold Stott is asking us to imagine? How is it asking us to look forward and into what? I think it's asking us to remember our past and to bring it into the present. I think, you know, the play ends with the list of family members lost in the Holocaust. Um, 
And I think it's so that we remember their names. You know, we're taught a lot about the numbers that were tattooed on people's arms, um, but every single person had a name and a story and they loved and they lost and they had passions and they had flaws and they were real. And I think that is the key to people understanding one another, right? Is seeing each other's humanity. And that's what's missing from our political and social climate right now is I think everyone's very quick to anger and quick to fear and quick to um, summarizing entire groups of people in a soundbite or a tweet. And we could all benefit from trying to just see the humanity in one another and talk to each other and learn each other's stories and investigate how we're different and investigate how we're the same so that we can meet somewhere in the middle and just be decent, kind human beings to one another. So that's what I hope people take away. Thank you so much, Casey. And Tova, I saved you the last word. Um, and, and it's the same question. And I love, I love ending with Funny Girl as this deeply meaningful and, and in many ways, not every moment of, of the narrative, but in many ways, this joyous narrative. What future do you think Funny Girl might be inviting us to imagine? Well, if you're good people and go see Leopold Staten Parade and Camp Siegfried, and, and you get to celebrate and even fiddle around the roof in Yiddish, you get to celebrate your Judaism at Funny Girl and celebrate the American dream. I mean, what, you think when Barbara Streisand moved to, to Hollywood, she didn't, she had an easy time? That the Jewish men didn't say to her what Strakosh says to Fanny in the first act? You, I don't perceive you as beautiful. I don't perceive you as sexual. Who the hell are you? And her talent broke through and then nobody could tell her anything. And many of her lovers in her subsequent movies were Christian. It was very interesting. Robert Redford and even her, her current husband, whom she adores. Incidentally, she's a great human being. You know, people come in my book from love or fear, and when they come from love, you're doing okay. Um, the part of, of Funny Girl that's so appealing is that it's the success of the American myth of you come here with nothing and you create your own life and you can break through. My father was born in 1910, and by 1930, he was at Harvard Law School on scholarship. That's the American dream. Um, uh, his father was a silk mill owner. We were Austrian, uh, uh, Casey. We were Austrian. We lived in the second district and everybody but two relatives survived. They got out after Kristallnacht and those who were killed were killed by gunshot. It was before the concentration camps. They were told they would be, when they were on a train to Jerusalem, it went right up to the Russian pale and they were, they were shot to death. And as you know, at Vansi, the Nazis decided that since there were 3 million Jews in, in Poland, it, they didn't want to waste ammunition on them. So they had to come up with another solution. And when Utah wouldn't take them and, and Uganda wouldn't, or Africa wouldn't take them, the final solution was they were going to eliminate them. So we have a dream within a dream. So we have the American dream inside, the, inside this Jewish American story. I'm in a stadium event. I have 1,200 people screaming approbation at the cast of actors inside this story. What can I say? Enjoy being who you are. Understand your own underbelly and choose the best of you. This is the only life you've got in this body. Choose the best of you.